0: Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. I thought before I read the scriptures today, I might just say a prayer um, to help us focus. It's from the, um, the prayer book and it's from the season of Advent. So let me just pray before we read the Bible. Blessed Lord. You have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn and inwardly digest them that encouraged and supported by your holy word we may embrace and always hold fast the joyful hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our saviour Jesus Christ. Amen. So, turning to the Bible now, our first reading is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, which is on page 1072 of the Church Bibles. So, Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali but in the future he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder, ...will accomplish this. Our second reading is from Romans... ...Chapter 5, verses 1 to 11... ...which is on page 1752. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... ...we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation.
1: Thanks, Nicole. Great work. Thanks. Um, Hi, my name is Andrew. If I have not had the pleasure of meeting you, Welcome to City Light North Adelaide. Uh, it is my pleasure to uh, open up God's Word this morning. Uh, if especially, I extend, extend, extend the welcome of Jacko as well this morning, especially if you're new around here or if you're just new to faith or you're just, you're just here for the Christmas vibe, man. Like, I, I'm, I'm totally down for that. I'm just glad that you're here. Um, if you're new here, our Bible series, as Jaco said before, is, um, for this next coming few weeks is a, something called Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, where we look at how God's people in the Bible looked forward to the long-awaited coming of Jesus. So as we get into God's Word this morning, I'm going to invite you to pray with me that God will do a work in us. So let's pray together, hey?
0: Um,
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that... It is by the means of your word is the means that we need to know who you are. Uh, I pray, Lord, this morning that you renew our minds, you revive our hearts, and you refresh our souls. I pray this morning that for those of us who do not know you or faintly see you, I pray that you open our eyes, that you unstick our ears, and you make us attentive to your voice. Father, I pray that you, Spirit, I pray that you fill us with hope this morning as we gaze at who you are. Spirit, have your way within us. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Before I can, before we get into it, can I just say like it's... It's 3rd December. What, what on earth is going on with time? Time. I feel like time has kind of f- flown this way uh, so quickly. It's 22 days till Christmas. That's just over three weeks. That's, that's nuts. Um, a few weeks ago, I saw on YouTube, my YouTube feed this video from... I'm not going to show the video. I'm just going to show you clips of it. This video here. Um, you might know this person here. This is Mariah Carey, um, and I think she's accepted her relevance as a meme these days, right? She's just—that's all she is really uh, in terms of relevance. Um, this video depicts of her getting defrosted, and she announces in this super high soprano, "It's time," in you know, classic Mariah Carey style. And from the video, you can see it looks, you know, pretty cheery. It looks pretty cheery. I'm like, if I were Mariah Carey, what's not to be cheerful about Christmas, right? You have the Christmas vibe. You have the festivities, and what's that? A significantly larger than usual royalties check for December. Like, <laughs> how unusual! But yes, Ma- Mariah Carey is right. It's that time of year. Um, about two, or th- uh, two or three weeks ago, my uh, one of my neighbours down the uh, the road, um, they started putting up their, their Christmas lights, and it's it's this it's this huge display. There's this is giant snowman. There's like running. There's a runway of LED candle, like LED candy canes. Um, the front yard is littered with like reindeers and statues and lights. Uh, there's a bubble machine in front of the house. Who's a bubble machine in front of the, the, the lighthouse? And then there's also, you know, to top it off, there's a Grinch on top of the, the, the roof trying to steal all the presents, right? And you know this person takes Christmas really seriously because they have. A Google Map page for their for their lights. (laughs) Who has a Google Map page for their lights? This person does. But you know what? Sure enough, as I've been walking my dog past this house over the last couple of weeks, more and more and more parents and their kids are dropping by and checking it out. And strangely enough, they're doing it even in the in the daytime with a no lights on no lights on right. So I don't get that. (laughs) But you know what? They seem to be having a grand old time. Now. I'm not here to beat down the Christmas spirit or the holiday cheer. In fact, I can understand, for many people, it's actually kind of nice, a kind of nice feeling, you know, when you know, everything just seems a bit brighter, everything seems a bit happier, you know? But I think the worst thing about Christmas is the aftermath, the comedown. You know what I'm talking about? A few years ago, um, Delphine and I, we bought this for Christmas. We bought a, um, a pine tree for Christmas, um, and, it was, and it was amazing. The house smelled great, it lifted our spirits. It's kind of cool, right? It's kind of novel. But at the end of the Christmas season, what were, we, what were we left with? A mess of fallen pine needles everywhere, a dead tree, and the realization that it's back to reality. And I'm not trying to be depressive or nihilistic in any means, but when you know when the festivities are over and we put Mariah Carey back into the deep freezer, honestly, what's the point? Uh, you know the feeling, the emptiness that you feel when you're putting this stuffing away that that tree into its box again. You really, so you kind of get that feeling. What what's what's the point? Now, as Christians, we know that Christmas is about Jesus, 100%. Christ, Christmas, it's, it's, it's there, it's in the name. But I know for me, and I don't know if this is for you, but certainly for me, I've had Christmases, Christmas seasons where you get so busy, get so caught up in things that Jesus, yeah, you know about Jesus, but it's more of an afterthought, if we're honest. It's more like an add-on. And at the end of it all, it seems kind of like cheap sentimentality. It's kind of like, meh. meh. It's interesting, a few years ago in Rundle Mall, and they had giant letters sitting there spelling the words such as, like, joy and peace. I don't know if you've seen, you remember these. Does anyone remember these at all? I don't know if they still have them at all, but I remember this really sticking to my head. And I'm not, you might be wondering, are you, are you griping about this, Andrew? Isn't this what Christmas is actually about, joy and peace? And yeah, but honestly, part, part of me feels, it's kind of cliche, right? And I dare say, maybe even try it when our society kind of throws these Christmasy kind of words around, and especially when we consider those who are really hurting and in the dumps. If, if Christmas is meant to be about joy and peace, but it's based on our loose na- cultural narrative of, you know, it's just celebrating, just having a good time, or you know, it's about getting gifts from a, from a jolly old man because you're a good boy or a good girl, Surely that's not the source. Surely that isn't the source of deep joy and peace that Christmas is about. If it is, it's, quite frankly, it's pretty thin. And this, my friends, is where the, bi- the story of the Bible comes in, specifically our Bible passage today. The, the reading that we have today is one of those famous passages that you read in Christians' churches during Christmas time all, every year. And most of us probably have some sort of faint, at least some sort of faint familiarity, right? got some heads, some heads on him. But in order to really understand what it means, particularly for what it meant for God's people of old, uh, we need to do some groundwork to understand how it really fits in the the grand story of of God. So I encourage you to stay with me as we strap into our seats and speed run through the Bible. Um, I'm going to also plug before we do this. If you have not read this book... This is called, this is Vaughan Roberts, God's Big Picture. This kind of runs through the entire Bible really, really quickly. And I would encourage you, if you're new to faith or something, or if you want to just get your head around the Bible, really recommend it. Awesome book to read. There will be copies in the back. Um, and I know that we've covered some of this over the last few weeks, but just, just hang with me. So let's start from the very beginning. We've got, we've got Genesis, right? So the Bible starts at Genesis. God creates all things. He's ruling over all things. However, when God rules... He, and has dominion over something. He's not like a selfish dictator, or how, like how we think of like a, an over-authoritarian ruler. But when he rules, he is ruling with care and is cultivating the earth. And then in Genesis 1, um, 26 to28, God creates humanity, and He makes them to bear his image, to be like him. And his instruction to humanity is to rule and reign over all things, just like Him. And that's nuts. Humans were made to share in the ruling and the reigning over the earth. But it's not long until things go wrong. We see in literally two chapters later in Genesis 3, and we keep going back to Genesis 3 because it's such a pivotal point in the Bible story, humanity is tempted and rebels rebels against God, and as a result, the disease of sin infects and affects all of creation and the created order, but also separates humanity from God and distorts relationships that humans have with each other. So by the end of Genesis 3, you get the image that you get is that humanity has messed up big time and explains why the world is so messed up as it is today. However, in the midst of the chaos of Genesis 3, God promises something in Genesis 3.15. And Jacko covered this in week one, and, but this is what it says. I will put enmity, this is Genesis 3.15, it says, and it is God speaking to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and he will strike his, and you will strike his heel. God promises here that through one of Eve's offspring, through one particular human being, that evil will be crushed and all things will be made right again. But where would this person come from? Let's fast forward a bit more to Genesis 12, um, 2-3. In here, God picks a random person called Abraham. You might have heard of him. And he makes a promise to this guy, a promise. This is what Genesis 12, 2-3 says. And this is God speaking to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We did not see this person fully yet in God's promise to Abraham. But you see through Abraham's family line, through them as a nation... That they will not only just be blessed, but God prom He promises they're going to be somehow a blessing to who? To all the peoples on the earth. let's if we fast forward from here, we pass fast forward and past Moses, past the Exodus, past entering the, the promised land, past the judges, past King Saul, you get to a guy named King David. King David, at this point in the biblical story, um, God's people had established themselves as a nation, and David had set up this kingdom. And dude, Israel was popping off, man. Like, Israel was, appears to be this really prosperous nation. And at this point in the Bible story, things are sounding pretty sweet. Israel is, is at its highest point in its history. And then the prophet Nathan says something to King David in 2 Samuel seven eleven 11 to 13. He says this to him. This is Nathan speaking to David. The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So to recap here, from the start, God's promised a serpent crusher. God has promised to bless his chosen people, Israel, and through them, they would bless the world somehow. And God has promised to establish someone from the line of David and Abraham that their kingdom, their kingdom, would last forever. We see time and time and time again through the promises of God to his people, you see these themes of promise. Offspring, blessing, and kingdom, and these ideas are really, really important. However, if we go back to the the biblical narrative, it's from 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 David's um, calling there, uh, David's calling uh, the covenant made to David. However, at this point, after this, it's kind of just downhill. Now, as good as Israel looked under King David, it only after one generation after David, the sinfulness of that nation and the sinfulness of its kings splits Israel into two, splits them into two kingdoms and if you want to know, 922 BC, into both the northern and southern kingdoms. The north one's called, we call them Israel, and the south is called Judah, Right? Um, and both northern and southern kingdoms are rebellious to God over the next few hundred years. They were so rebellious, in fact, that God pronounced judgment on both kingdoms and used what you we know is the Assyrian Empire to firstly conquer the northern uh, kingdom, first in 722 BC. And the Assyrians are right on the doorstep in the, uh, of Judah in the early 7th century BC. And this is all important. Because our reading from Isaiah sits not just long after the northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians. And it really sets the scene for the original hearers that this word from Isaiah um, uh, was to, which were the people in, in, in the southern kingdom, Judah. Again, if you lived in Judah at this time, you would have known the promises of God, the promises that of the serpent crusher, of the offspring from Abraham and David, of David's kingdom that would last forever. These promises would have been in the forefront of your mind, and it formed your identity, who you were. The question on your mind would have been, though, is God going to deliver on what He promised? Like, if I was there, my mind turned around and would have been like, man, I don't know, this is, things are looking pretty sketch, bro. <laughs> like, Israel is split up, and the northern kingdom, that, that's done. Like, God's done with those folks. And I mean, we've, we've done some dodgy stuff too. Like, and and Isaiah has told us that the Assyrians are on our doorstep. I don't know, things aren't looking good for us, bro. All in all, things were looking really, really bleak for the people of God. And then comes Isaiah with our reading today. In chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. And despite the geopolitical and spiritual devastation of the northern and southern kingdoms, he announces something hopeful. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Verse 1 says this. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Isaiah points out to the humbling of the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, which are references to the Assyrians conquering the northern kingdom. But he's also announcing that there will be no more gloom for them. Why? Because one day in the future, one day in the future God is going to honor them. Honor them. However, the original hearers would have thought, how can that be? How can be? You mean the apost- that apostate northern kingdom? What do you mean honor them? How is he going to do that? Well, we see that in verses 2 and 3. It says this. The people walking in darkness have seen, what? A great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. God is going to honor them by sending one day a great light. Yes, there was physical dark, the physical darkness of hunger and deprivation, but this was intensified by the spiritual darkness that the, people had, that the people had turned to false gods who were actually no gods of help at all. And yet God was going to send to that land one day a light to shine amongst the darkness. And Isaiah sees the effect that this has in verse 3. The effect is, you will have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Notice that throughout this prophecy that Isaiah speaks, Isaiah speaks here as things have already happened. Isaiah speaks his way to indicate that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Isaiah is certain that the great light is coming to the darkness and that is why he is certain that the nation of Israel will have their joy increased. How much joy? Well, Isaiah gives these images of the joy of a farmer who has a good harvest, right? Now we're not an agrarian culture, but imagine you working all year, all year round for your crops. It, It is incredibly stressful. Ask a farmer, especially in the day before hydroponics or pesticides or herbicides, advanced agricultural techniques, John Deere, work, agricultural work was hard. I'm, I'm like, I know that for myself right now. I'm trying to grow grass in my front yard, and as soon as I see like, a little like, bit of grass, it's like, yes! it's amazing, right? Can you imagine a crop? A crop? Because if you, had a, if, you, if you got a harvest, you knew you were going to eat well. How much joy and relief would you feel from a harvest? Or the other image that Isaiah gives is the elation of going through a bloody war. That when you, you put, think about it, you put your life on the line, you come at the end with your life intact, and you're victorious over your enemies. This is the kind of intense jubilation that, is, that the light in the darkness is going to bring. But what exactly was this great light going to do? Well, you find that in verses 4 and 5. It says this For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. We see from verse 4 that there was a time coming when God's people would no longer suffer under tyranny and oppression. With the language here, Isaiah is actually alluding to God's past actions in Egypt and the Exodus. Previously, God had broken the yoke of the Egyptians, and he'd lifted up the oppressed people and lifted their burdens. He brought them out. He liberated and redeemed them. And so what Isaiah is saying here is that there's going to be another act of redemption like that. It's going to happen again to God's people, just like it happened in Egypt. But as Isaiah also points to God defeating the Midianites, which is another story in the Old Testament. Why? He does that to illustrate that the upcoming act of redemption for God's people was going to happen by God's power alone. I'm gonna say that again. This upcoming act of God's this upcoming act of redemption of God's people was going to happen by God's power alone, right? And we see the everlasting impact of this act in verse 5. It says, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, it will be fuel for the fire. This act of redemption is so secure that God's people will never, ever, never, ever need to be brought back and redeemed again. God is so powerful over the enemies that there will be no need for any warfare. And how was God going to achieve this? Well, you we see this in verse 6 and 7. Verse 6. For to us, for to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you might be thinking, wait a second, has Isaiah here told that this, the, his audience, his readers, that God's means of redemption is a baby? A baby? Are you, are you, are you serious? Right, we, we have lots of new babies here. Like, if you have, uh, Surely there's babies around here. Oh, look at a baby. Find a baby around you. There's, there's got to be around you, right? Look at, a, look, look at one right now. If there's, especially if you're parents of a new one. They're small. They're fragile. They're dependent. What is a baby going to do against the forces of tyranny and oppression? But this was no... Ordinary baby. This baby has the government on its shoulders. But then when we hear that, I was like, for our 21st century ears, like, what 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 do you mean, Tran? That, what do you mean, Andrew? That the government's on his shoulders. Are you mean that he's gonna win the next election? Is that, or is he like giving Albo like a piggyback? Is that was that what you mean? No. Isaiah here isn't appealing to any man-made institution or national authority. Rather Isaiah is actually appealing to the absolute highest place of power, dominion, and authority in heaven. And that authority is on this baby. And this is seen in, his, in the following titles for, the, for him. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This kid was going to be king. This kid was going to be king, but he was not just going to be like any other king. He wasn't going to be like the ones before him, like not like David, who was a man after God's heart, but he slept with Bathsheba. Not like Solomon, who had all the wisdom in the world, but said it had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He's not like the other 20 kings of the northern and southern Israel's kingdoms, who are all flawed, and some are horrendously flawed, where they, they, they practice paganism and child sacrifice. No, this baby was going to be different and he was going to become king. This king was going to be perfect. The title says it all. Now, I'd love to spend the next four hours running through the expounding on these titles, but we don't have time for that, but I think J. Alec Mortier sums it up best in his commentary in Isaiah. He says this, The perfection of this king is seen in his qualification for ruling, wonderful counsellor, his person and power, mighty God. His relationship to his subjects, everlasting father. And the society his rule creates, prince of peace. I'm going to read that again, just, just take it in. Just take it in. The perfection of this king is seen in his qualification for ruling, his person and power, his relationship to his subjects, and the society his rule creates. Wonderful counselor, imagine you not having to bicker about politics because your ruler is so wise. Mighty God, imagine a ruler who's able to do anything because they have the power to do so, and he does so in your interest. Everlasting Father, imagine a ruler who knew you inside out because they were the one who created you, and he called you son, a royal son or daughter. prince of peace. Imagine life underneath this ruler where you live life to the absolute fullest, in perfect harmony with all things. No suffering, no pain, no turmoil, no war. You could not have a more perfect king. This king was going to be in a league of his own. He was creme de la creme, absolutely unrivaled and unmatched, friends. Why? Because this baby king It's God in the flesh. It's God in the flesh. Isaiah goes on in verse 7 to show us how this all pans out. I'll read it for us. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. For he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and holding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Have you ever been zealous about something? Do we know what the word zealous means? Uh, 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 zealous is more than just being passionate about something. It's more like an enthusiastic determination, but turned out to 11, right? Take an example, think of a, sport. think of a sports fan. Think, pick your sport, for footy would do it. Whether you're a Crows supporter, or you're a power supporter of Swans or Richmond, whether they win, or maybe whether, whether they lose, <laughs> some fans lose their absolute minds. That's passion. Zero, on the other hand, is more like getting a horrendous ACL footy injury on the field, overcoming surgery, suffering through rehab, doing months and months and months of strength and conditioning, only to have your, only to have your... The, your, your, your career put into question and then to lead your team to another win and another, and another championship. That's zeal. That's, that's determination. And the zeal of an AFL player pales in comparison to the zeal of the Lord, friends. The zeal of the Lord is not merely passion, but it is his, it is, his it, his, it is his unstoppable determination. Unstoppable determination. Here in Isaiah, we see the culmination of all that God's people have been looking forward to the promised offspring of Genesis 3, the pro- promised blessing to the world of, from Genesis 12, the, the promised king from the line of David from 2 Samuel 7, and the kingdom that will last forever. And we know that the zeal of the Lord cannot be stopped because we have seen his promises come to fruition in the birth of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect king that we celebrate at Christmas because he came as light into the darkness. He is the God who took on flesh. He came to establish his eternal kingdom and he is ruling and reigning today. Now, someone must be, might be thinking... Great, I know that, Andrew. Fantastic. Thanks for telling me something I know. Question, though. If Jesus is king, and he's already come, does that mean he's going to solve all our problems? I mean, like Trent, you said he's the liberator, he's the redeemer, he's going to fix the world. He's going to fix my problems, right? And in one way, yes, actually, you know what? King Jesus is going to fix your problems. But probably not in the way that you think it's going to be fixed, and I get it, a lot of us are facing lots of problems, both individually and communally, I mean, we just love for them to be solved, right, some of us may be burdened with, you know, career or financial issues, or mental health issues, anxiety, depression, chronic health problems, maybe, I don't know, maybe you're struggling to have kids, or maybe you're struggling with singleness, or you have relationship issues with your family, And then there's our societal problems as well, like think about the treatment of our First Nations people or the looming financial crisis and housing affordability crisis or the polarisation of our society. Or maybe even think even wider. Think about global issues, the wealth inequality and global poverty, the war in Ukraine, Gaza Strip, Afghanistan, global climate change issues, looming geopolitics. Yeah, all of these issues are really pressing. But you know what? All of these problems are symptoms of just a larger problem that all of us face. As I said earlier, in Genesis 3, sin has infected and affected all of creation. Even though Isaiah announced of the sure hope of a perfect king that, that he would rule forever, terrible things still happen to God's people, whether it was because of their own sin or because of they just, we just live in a sinful world. The original audience of Isaiah heard this prophecy, but they still got attacked by Assyria. And if you know your, your biblical history, you know that Isaiah, um, from Isaiah, that the southern kingdom almost gets wiped out by Assyria, except for the capital of Jerusalem. However, even though God's people weren't oppressed by, were, were, even though God's people were oppressed by the Assyrian empire, that wasn't actually their greatest oppressor. It was sin. Sin was their greatest problem. It was their greatest tyrant. It was their greatest oppressor. And that's the same with us. Our greatest problem isn't our health and prosperity. It isn't economic or social or political. Our greatest problem is sin. And, and all right, don't feel bad. Even God's people have a track record of misunderstanding Jesus, the prophesied king. I don't know, You just read through the Gospels, right? Something like Mark 10. Here you have Messiah Jesus, he's constantly talking about the kingdom of God, and even his disciples get it twisted and think that the kingdom is about fixing the political issues, i.e. kicking out the Romans. Friends, sin is humanity's greatest problem. Now, just because sin is the greatest problem that we have, doesn't mean I'm diminishing the significance of the struggles that we might be going through or that our society is facing. In fact, God deeply cares about each and every one of those things. But if you're like me, you might be wondering, how does the hope of Jesus being king help me in the here and now? What's the point if it doesn't help? Well, this is where our reading in Romans 5 helps us today. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 5. It says this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace into which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. If we have accepted Jesus as king of our lives, we have the ultimate peace. We have peace with God. That is our biggest circumstantial issue solved. And when we grasp how significant that is, to have, how significant it is to have peace with God, nothing else comparatively matters. Paul in Romans says this in uh, in chapter 8. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. However, when we also rest in the hope of King Jesus, we we also rest in the hope of the glory of God. God promised the serpent crusher. God promised a blessing to the nations. God promised the king who will establish his kingdom and reign eternally. And for his glory's sake, we have seen that God has delivered. Therefore, when the going gets tough for us, we can trust that God will continue to deliver on his promises because his name depends on it. He has a track record of doing so. So we can rest in the hope that Christ will come again, definitely come again, and he will definitely make things right, and he will definitely redeem creation. And although hope in Jesus' return might sound a bit cliche, we feel a bit ashamed about it. Romans 5 says otherwise. He says that our hope does not lead us to shame and disappointment. Why? Because we know that God loves us so much. And we know that because the Spirit who fills us, fills our hearts with his love. Friends, this is why we can talk about joy and peace at Christmas. Our joy and peace isn't based on trivial gift giving or celebrating at the end of the year. Our joy and peace isn't based on festivities, lights, or singing along to Mariah Carey. Rather, our joy is found in God being faithful to his promises. Our joy is found in God sending his perfect king, the perfect ruler, to establish his kingdom. Our joy is found in peace that we have with God because because Jesus crushed sin and death. Our joy is found in the promise that Christ will come again to consummate his kingdom, to bring it to the full, where all creation will be redeemed and all things will be made right. That's worth celebrating about this Christmas, right? Let's thank God for his faithfulness and for his giving us his perfect king. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your faithfulness. and In the garden, we stuffed up and you promised to fix the sin in our world And since then you have shown us your faithfulness in sending your son. Thank you, God, that Jesus is king, that no one is like him. Thank you that he is perfect and he rules and reigns with all power and authority in heaven. And yet he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself for us. Father, help us to grasp the full meaning of his life, death, and resurrection. Not that we're just saved, but that his kingdom establishes, uh, that that his kingdom brings life and life to the full. I pray, Lord, that you help us live that out. Help us to live in light of your second coming. Help us to persevere in this sinful world as we struggle against the effects of sin. In the challenges of life, help us to cling onto the hope that Christ is ruling and reigning. Help us hold onto to the truth that you will do what you have said and that you will make all things new again. But as we leave this place today, as we gaze upon Jesus, help us as we enter this Christmas season to shine your light and your life wherever we go. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.